Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? The new EU Confidential podcast gets started right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by BP. We see possibilities in solar farms that float. To see how we're driving worldwide growth in solar through our LightSource BP partnership, go to bp.com forward slash possibilities everywhere. This Brexit, it's not my choice. They decide... They decide, I deeply regret it, but don't put the blame on us because now they don't know how to get out of this situation. They put themselves in. Welcome to the new EU Confidential Podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and you just heard the Prime Minister of Luxembourg during a press conference earlier this week. Xavier Bettel met with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but Johnson was a no-show at their post-meeting press conference, and Bettel, as you heard, did not mince words about the UK's handling of Brexit. Let's bring in the podcast quartet with their take. We have Reem in Paris, Matt in Berlin, and a special welcome to our correspondent in Italy, Silvia Shorili Borelli. Annabel's taken a break from dodging mice in the UK Parliament, so Silvia has kindly stepped in, and it's a good week to have her on the podcast with various goings on in Italy. But let's start with Betel. How has his one man show? with two lecterns gone down in the various capitals. Uh, Matt, how about in Berlin? There was sort of a mixed reaction to it. Some people thought that he went a little bit too far and that Europe should continue to take the high road. On the other hand, he's kind of put himself on the map with this because not many people had ever heard of him. And, uh, you know, if you're Luxembourg, you've got to do what you can to, you know, get people to notice you. So it's not every day that you see the Prime Minister of Luxembourg on the front pages of uh, British newspapers. Possibly not even on the front page of the Luxembourg newspapers. Sylvia, is any of this penetrating in Rome or are people caught up in, you know, Italy's own domestic politics? Well, I think the media and the government definitely have too many of their own problems. But it was interesting because a league lawmaker told me the other day, you see how these people and how the European Union just makes it hard for anyone who doesn't see eye to eye with them. The Eurosceptic League was commenting in private that this is just another example of how Europhiles and EU supporters just make everyone else's lives a nightmare, basically. Yeah, so I think it also shows just how bizarre, you know, this example from Italy, how bizarre this discussion has become that this press conference and whether, you know, it could have been held indoors or outdoors has risen to this level. And you have serious people, you know, continuing to debate this days later instead of really talking about, you know, the underlying issues. And I think that's that's part of the problem here is that this whole Brexit question has just become a complete spectacle. But it also seems to have become sort of a, a blame game in some ways. You know, it's all, you always hear that basically it's this is not the responsibility of the UK, even though it was their choice, as French officials say here, 
And it seems like the EU is constantly being blamed for not providing a solution for a problem that the UK created for itself. Right, that was definitely the tone of Bettel's remarks. And as Annabelle's not here this week, I do think looking at the UK press, you know, this probably didn't go down um, or was not detrimental to Boris Johnson with his base, if you like. So in a sense, it played well for the bases on both sides. And it's maybe the people in the middle who were not too thrilled with it. But let's move along now to um, something that's still dominating the conversation here in Brussels, which is this question of the titles that have been given to a lot of the new members of the European Commission. And uh, the European Parliament is getting into this now. There's a session down in Strasbourg and people have been saying, you know, we really don't understand these titles and it makes us hard to even know who should be questioning these commissioners in their confirmation hearings because we don't actually know what they're responsible for. But Ursula von der Leyen thinks everything is perfectly clear. What uh, the titles are concerned, I think uh, they are very much more understandable than sometimes titles used to be to the public. They are exactly the guidelines from taken from my political guidelines I laid out to the parliament a few weeks ago. So just to be clear about some of those titles, which are much more understandable than previous ones, uh, you have the Vice President for Inter-Institutional Relations and Foresight, somebody who is responsible for protecting the European way of life, uh, someone else who is responsible for an economy that works for people. The controversial thing here, particularly with the protecting the European way of life uh, job, is that it includes migration. And so the, the critics are saying, well, hold on, you're basically saying that protecting the European way of life means protecting Europe from migrants and keeping out migrants. Sylvia, what do you make of these titles? People here in Italy were making examples about a debate from a few years ago about Turkey joining the European Union and how that debate was linked to preserving European Christian values and the European way of life. And at that time, it was highly criticized by people that were in favor of integration. And so here, that was seen as a way to sort of accommodate a populist rhetoric. And while the European Commission has tried to exclude Eurosceptics and populists from the Commission itself, it has, in, in the view of Italian media, and some politicians down here picked up on the language, on the rhetoric, and probably is trying to speak to arguments that resonate with people, or at least some people throughout Europe. Matt, what do you make of it? You know, for many Germans, it does sound like a bit of a dog whistle in the sense that it was clear that von der Leyen was trying to steal the thunder of the populace by coming up with this uh, very elaborate title. At the same time, though, I think that, you know, many people here sort of feel that there is a need to do something to not let the uh, populace occupy uh, this space. I mean, that said, it does seem that in, in, in this case, it is it is backfired on her. Because, you know, in, instead of acknowledging that it may have been a mistake, von der Leyen seems to have doubled down and has, has refused to change the name so far, even though you've had people like Jean-Claude Juncker and, and others, you know, gently hint that it might be a good idea to come up with a different title. I think maybe von der Leyen could have sort of preempted all of this by maybe communicating a bit more in the run-up. Uh, instead, she, like before revealing her commission makeup. Instead, she chose to play it really sort of secretive. And now she's kind of dealing with this blowback, which she maybe could have heard a bit of the of the feedback before and sort of avoided some of this. 
Matt, is that familiar from you know your time reporting on von der Leyen uh, when she was in Berlin? Is that the way she tends to operate? Yeah, she definitely has a reputation for running a you know really kind of tight ship in terms of the communications, not talking to a lot of people about what she's planning to do, really only consulting with a very small circle of advisors. And as as Reem says, you know that has the disadvantage of you know when when something gets out. It hasn't really been um, tested widely. And so if a small group of people thinks that, uh, you know, the name for this uh, commission position was was a really, you know, kind of nifty idea, you know, they're, they're blind to the fact that a, a lot of people are going to think otherwise. And I think it could also be a sign of things to come in terms of how von der Leyen is going to run this commission both in terms of the very tight communications, not trying to build a real consensus before going public, and also in her, you know, stubborn reaction to to the criticism where she she's basically said no, she's not backing down from it. Although it wouldn't really have cost her that much politically to do so. Yeah, she hasn't actually engaged on this. She published an op-ed where she didn't actually mention the fact that migration is part of this portfolio, and she put out a tweet with a kind of link to European values as outlined in the EU treaties. So rather than doing a little interview or, you know, allowing herself to be doorstep somewhere where she engaged a bit, it's very much, even though she has addressed the issue, it's very much been on her terms, very much been on her very much trying to control the message, just as she tried to very much control the release of information around the new commission. And I think that's something we're probably going to have to get used to here, or perhaps she's going to change as, as she goes on, but that certainly feels like the, the tone at the moment. Like we've got so much to talk about, so we'll, we'll just crack on to Italy with former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi announcing he's leaving the Democratic Party, party he used to lead, the party which has just entered government and he's forming his own party. Silvio, what's going on here? Why is he doing this? He says it's because he wanted to be very straightforward with this uh, Democratic Party five-star government that was just sworn in. He wanted to let them know from the get-go that uh, he doesn't see eye-to-eye with them on everything. He remains a liberal. He remains a centrist. He remains anti-populist, pro-business. And he didn't want to create any confusion within the government being part of one of the two parties that makes up the government and, you know, create intentions over policy or legislation if for any reason differences might arise going forward. But actually, this, I think, has been on the cards for a very long time now, at least since he lost the party's leadership almost two years ago. The relations became increasingly difficult with the more left-wing part of the Democratic Party, the current party leadership. So Nicola Zingaretti is now flirting with the idea of perhaps making this alliance with the five stars a structural one, which would mean running together in regional and local elections. And Renzi would never back anything of sorts. When I interviewed him earlier this month, he said that the idea of him breaking up from the Democratic Party was boring gossip at that point. But he made it very, very clear that his opinion on the five stars and on Giuseppe Conte hadn't changed one bit, and it's not a positive opinion. And he also underlined that the new government had the sole aim of avoiding a rise of the Eurosceptic far right and save Italy's economy. So he doesn't really see it 
as a political alliance or something that is viable for the long term. Matt, the view from Berlin? My view anyway, I doubt that it's shared by anybody else here, but it, it, it does seem to be that, uh, you know, this trend that we've seen in recent years of parties, the the old parties continuing to disintegrate and, and being supplanted by these personality-driven movements continues. You know, the damage that uh, Renzi will do to the PD here is, is actually, for me, I think the real story and, and what kind of future it's going to have if, if he... Well, as he said, he will do. You know, hives off. You know, a good a good number of their MPs here, and 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 this, you know, like the Social Democrats in Germany and the Socialists in in France was one of the dominant political forces. You know, now they're withering and they're being replaced by these parties that are effectively cults of personality. Whether you're talking about En Marche or the the Austrian People's Party around Sebastian Kurz and so forth. So I think that's really what we're what we're seeing here, and I. I I think one can sort of question the viability of this Renzi party. I think the move definitely weakens this government. I heard uh, Prime Minister Conte was furious. He called the Democratic Party Secretary Zingaretti to say that this complicates the matter because now uh, the negotiations are going to have to be between Renzi, Zingaretti and Conte himself. So it makes the fragile coalition even weaker. But I think it's also important to focus on the fact that a party, a liberal party on the footprint of uh, Macron's En Marche is not necessarily something that uh, would be successful or at all, um, as Matt said, viable in Italy, because Italy doesn't have, I mean, most Italians aren't uh, liberals. And at this point in time, the Italian electorate is very polarized and it's split between the League and the League remains the first party and the populist left. So something that places itself in the middle, I think, has a long way to go before it can become a a viable alternative for any government now or in a few years' time. Okay, so let's move on now, to Reem, to your interview. So you spoke to the president of Georgia. Tell us a bit about her. So Salome Zurabishvili has a really interesting uh, sort of life story. She was born to Georgian sort of exiles in Paris, grew up in Paris. She served in the French uh, Foreign Service for for three decades. She was elected president of Georgia in a big upset at the end of last year after a circuitous kind of path to becoming Georgian because, uh, so she grew up French, obviously, and um, so she became foreign minister of Georgia in 2004 and was given Georgian nationality because obviously she couldn't be foreign minister without having the nationality and was sort of granted an exception to be able to maintain her French nationality as well. And she only renounced her French nationality when she started running for president. And so she was in France about three weeks ago when I sat down with her at a moment of increased uh, sort of tensions with Russia. And for those among our, our listeners who aren't very familiar with what's going on in the country of Georgia, it's a small country. It's about 4 million people, but it has really big geopolitical challenges. And it shares a a problematic border with sort of its giant and not so friendly neighbor, Russia. And as you might know, following the Russia-Georgia war in 2008, two Georgian regions, breakaway territories, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, have been controlled by Russian-sponsored sort of authorities. That's 20% of the Georgian territory. But why am I telling you about something that happened more than a decade ago? It's because 
three weeks ago, like a month ago, there were reports of more military buildup in South Ossetia, mobilization of military equipment, but also a continued process of borderization. And you'll hear the president in the interview mention that. So what's borderization? It's the process by which the Russia-backed authorities in these breakaway territories keep attempting to draw a permanent border by erecting fences that cut off locals from their orchards and water resources, which are key to their livelihoods. Okay, let's hear that interview right now. First, here's a message from this week's sponsor. A message from BP. A race to renewables will not be enough. To deliver lower emissions, the world must make all forms of energy cleaner and better. Read about the many possibilities we see to make this happen at bp.com forward slash possibilities everywhere. Madam President, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. You're in Paris for a few days. What are you doing here? Well, first of all, I always like to be in Paris. I'm still somewhere in my heart, partly French and certainly European. But uh, I'm here for this uh, very big MEDEF forum of French businessmen. It was a very good chance to present Georgia's view and position about Europe, which at this time I think everybody needs to see us as these fierce defenders of the European idea and uh, the European future. And at the same time, it was an excellent occasion for me to galvanize a little bit uh, French entrepreneurs that are not very active and they, we need more of them in, the, in Georgia, in the Caucasus region in general. At this point, it's the external border of the EU, but one that is very promising uh, in terms of trade and investment and new infrastructures. So they should be aware that we are there and that they have to come and see how it is. Why is it important to have European and French investment in Georgia? Well, it's important in our European policy because what uh, is our motto today is to say more Europe in Georgia and more Georgia in Europe uh, because we know that the uh, political question is not on the agenda today. But the way to go forward, and we have to go forward, is to have this uh, incremental but very decisive movement of Europeans in Georgia, and we are having lots of tourists that are coming, and we need to see more investors because they're bringing not only the investments, they're bringing uh, European standards, uh, European experience. They are for the Georgian population Europeans coming to us. So it's very important on all grounds. And when they come to Georgia, they suddenly say, wow, it's it's Europe in certain ways, a different one, an exotic one, but uh, Europe. Is it also a way you trying to attract more European investment, a way to counterbalance Russia? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, we do not have with Russia the military force. We have in fact, renounced it, and that's very realistic and pragmatic. And we know that it's not a way to solve any of these uh, occupation uh, conflicts and occupation. We don't have uh, diplomatic relations with Russia. So it's very important that we are not seen by Russia as an isolated country where Russia can do whatever it wants. Russia has to start 
growingly to respect us. And the way to be respected is to have other partners that diversify the situation, that show that we are a country on our own, that is developing, and that's uh, very true. So I think that we are on our feet, despite this very difficult uh, situation. And another way to consolidate that uh, is to have uh, more European partners, more American partners, of course, that also are not investing enough. They are very big strategic partners, but not active enough in terms of uh, investment. And that, uh, I think, is increasing the stability of the country, which is one of our main uh, strengths, is to have this stability in a region, in a wide region, that is a very complex one, to say. Uh, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I listen to the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, say that, in his mind, sitting next to Russian President Vladimir Putin, that Europe is from Lisbon to Vladivostok, How does it seem from Tbilisi? Well, it could be seen if we are very orthodox in certain ways, saying what is he talking about and that's uh, impossible and play the isolated country that will be the last to accept that uh, something changes in the relationship with uh, with Russia. Uh, but I think if we are pragmatists, uh, we are the small country neighboring Russia and that will not change. Uh, what do we need? Again, we cannot solve it by force. We cannot ourselves and alone start negotiating with Russia. So we need our partners, those that we trust, Uh, to try to do the job uh, that, in fact, everybody would like to be seen, which is to uh, Europeanize uh, Russia. That has been an old dream. Is it a realistic dream to Europeanize well, Russia? Knows. Nobody knows. It's certainly a very difficult task. But even if it doesn't get there, if we can get uh, Russia to understand that it has to play by different rules, by the normal rules of uh, European relations. What are normal rules? Normal rules is respecting your neighbor. Uh, normal rules is not use force when you have internal problems to uh, solve those problems. Uh, normal rules is to respect the uh, engagements that you have taken. And that can happen because I have the experience of having had one negotiation with the Russians, uh, the military basis one, which started exactly like that. I told my counterpart, I said, are you going this time if we succeed to implement this uh, agreement? Or like we have been used in uh, history in our bilateral relations. This was that, when you were ambassador of France, correct? No, that was when I was oh. minister and when I started negotiating, before starting the negotiation. And I said, are you going to, for the first time in our bilateral history, respect uh, an engagement that we are going to, if we achieve it? And he promised that he would, and he has. So there is a way to make so it deals happens. with... I, I cannot explain why it happened, whether it's an exception that is without uh, future or whether it can be repeated. But I think that we have no choice but to try. Uh, we have two occupied territories that represent 20% of our, our territory. Those and are South Ossetia and, and Abkhazia. Abkhazia. Mm -hmm. 
And if they have not been able with that to divert us from our uh, European past, our NATO past, our development, economic and democratic, it has certainly slowed down everything. Uh, and so there are still issues, correct? If I, uh, at the beginning of August, there was even another village that was, you know, what was well, called borderization. Mm-hmm. We are trying, uh, the, the government, we are exactly on the same line on that. We're trying not... Uh, to go into the escalation that would follow provocations. We certainly have provocations. Uh, The question is, you can start making that into... uh, And then we become a country that is defined by this uh, conflict, by this instability on something that is not a border, but is the occupation line. Or we can do everything on our side that tries to attenuate the situation with the populations that are suffering, but continue on our road and not be determined and defined by that. That's a choice we have, and we have taken uh, the latter, which is to move uh, and to make all our decisions as if, which doesn't mean that we forget. We do not forget and we do not accept, but we still move ahead. The EU has the only... Which is what, by the way, Germany did, for instance. What do you mean? Uh, When Germany was divided, it didn't stop Germany of existing as a country. It was not completely and only uh, defined by this division, and they finally overcame it. So Mm. I'm convinced that we will uh, have one day and one closed day because things today are changing in fact much faster than they they use how are they changing from your side from your perspective anything is is possible anything that we would not have uh, thought possible is possible is uh, it's true for georgia we have achieved in our relationship with europe steps that nobody would have expected 20 years ago such as such as visa liberalization free trade and all these steps uh, from neighborhood to partnership and association we have european flags all over georgia and in government buildings and we really fa- feel part of the european family not yet of the european institutions but of the european family certainly why would the eu take this risk on georgia let's say you start accession talks mm-hmm. why would they take this risk of angering russia at a moment where the relationship with russia is difficult for the eu well i i don't think that the our european past has never been designed in that way and should not be designed in a way confrontational with russia it's uh, our past and in fact there is no way why it should be taken as an aggression or an offense uh, by russia we do not have any alternative it's our only alternative and an alternative to to what we are a small country we are not going to remain isolated and it's our natural both by values we do not have to europeanize we are and it's so it's very natural and it has been something that in the history all the georgian kings have always been looking at and, uh, and trying to get a closer relationship with the european family uh, and i don't think it's a risk for europe it's not a risk it's a real potential because today not only we are the furthest european country easy to understand easily accessible we have Christian values and we are not oriental Christian in certain senses and we are the opening gate to Far East we have also a free trade agreement with uh, China 
we are finishing the negotiation with India for a free trade agreement. So it's the obvious place where you can, without much risk, open up a platform to trading with, uh, with the further east. You said in, in a speech that Europe is kind of the guarantee of not being alone. And the EU has the only monitoring uh, mission at mm-hmm. the border, right, with these two... Which again would have been completely unthinkable uh, some 20 years ago that there would be a European force because it's a force. It's not a force that is active. It's not only monitoring, but these are still soldiers from European countries that are monitoring one of our non-borders. But have they been useful? Borderization is still happening. Yes, and nobody would uh, have thought that they were going to reverse uh, something that is inscribed and that's where we need France again to continue the work that was started by Sarkozy which is uh, to respect fully the agreement of ceasefire which uh, intended the Russian troops to go back to positions ante. The 2008 progress yeah so borderization is something that is not acceptable but when the EUMM started this uh, this mission they knew that it was not they didn't have the means uh, nor the political strengths to reverse that but they were there to provide uh, the sense of security that we cannot give to our population because we can have only policemen and we do not want to not that we cannot, but we do not want to have any military on that line because otherwise we would be transforming it in a real border. Into a confrontation? Oh, and in a real border. In a real mm-hmm. border. Mm-hmm. It would give legitimacy to something that we consider is only a line of uh, occupation. De facto. So we are mm-hmm. taken in that logic, which is uh, in low terms completely right. But then we have also populations living uh, on the side of this line. And some, some mornings I was reading, they wake up and some of their parts of their property has been eaten has up been by a fence. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's an everyday provocation where you can suddenly go crazy and say, what are they doing? And and the ways to react are very little, so you can scream. We do that from time to time. But if you scream every day, you began what what I was saying that we don't want, which is you become only the conflict. And then you discourage investors, you discourage stories, you're viewed in a completely different manner that you have to be helped and nobody can help you, so you tend to be forgotten. So we have to find the right uh, balance, um, and I think that we are more or less doing it. What did you mean when you said the EU should think outside the box? Well, I think that there are many things that can be done while we understand that there cannot be a political decision to put put us around the table. And by the way, sometimes when I'm thinking, even if we were around the table, we would be one of 28 or 29, a small country with 5 million inhabitants, that would not give us an extraordinary power. Of course, we would be heard, we would be inside the institution, that's a different thing. But there are many things that can be done without that. Although you're up for taking the place of the UK, right, when they leave. Yes, that's more uh, a joke. But I think that we can take many places. We have been active, for instance, in the international peacekeeping missions of the EU. Uh, We have been in Afghanistan with NATO, so we have an experience. And there will be uh, some places in which the UK will not be present, maybe with... uh, 
with the EU where we can be because it's for us a very important experience in security and uh, and there are many other things uh, in terms of culture, education, science, all these programs that are extremely important for us for what I think we uh, have to achieve in the very short uh, term, which is transform completely the society from a post-post-Soviet society to a completely pre-European. We have many European values in our heads, but uh, in terms of uh, job behavior or behavior in politics or things, we are still marked by those uh, years. You know, listening to you, you're kind of, you're going against the current. You are very enthusiastic about the EU mm -hmm. at a moment where not only Brexit is happening, but there's real Euroscepticism in some of the most important countries including France. Why are you so enthusiastic about the EU? Because we look at it, probably because we look at it from outside. And from outside, you can see much clearer why, what are the successes of Europe? Why is it that we still have so many difficulties to stop our illegal migrants to come to Europe? Uh, why is it? Why? Because they see what Europe means. It means standards, uh, it means protection, some things that we can still not offer to, uh, for instance, our workforce. Protection of individual rights in different manner, the society is more open. And we see that, and of course, uh, peace and stability and uh, the uh, democratic freedoms that are part of the everyday development. So there's All still a that, European dream? Yes. Yes, very much so. Mm. And we see much from closer. What are the other alternatives? We have no question in our mind of where we want to go and where we want to be. Is it a feeling that is that, that exists among your population? Well, or that's what I was saying. They are voting with their feet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so our challenge is really to bring to Georgia this thing that they're going to look out in Europe. Because, in fact, Georgians do not like to leave Georgia because they're very attached to their traditions, to their wine, to their uh, everything. But they're leaving because they want to benefit from all the things that are part of Europe. So what we have to do is, besides this uh, institutional rapprochement, is really to bring those standards into our legislation, the level of education in our practice, and all of the benefits of Europe uh, in our everyday life, so that they will go to Europe for tourism and not to, uh, to go and try their chance. Thank you very much, Madam President. That was Reem talking to the President of Georgia and that's all we have time for on this episode of the new EU Confidential. So it's goodbye from Matt in Berlin. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> nice. Uh, it's goodbye from Reem. Au revoir. And a special grazie and buona serata to Sylvia. Ciao, grazie. Okay. So thanks to everybody. We're always happy to hear your feedback or almost always. Uh, you can reach us via email at podcast at politico.eu or you can find us on social media individually where Matt is normally arguing with somebody he claims doesn't understand irony. Uh, next week, we'll take you to the Labour Party conference in the UK. We'll hear from uh, Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer. Thanks to Sylvia in particular for joining us uh, this week on the panel and a special thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks for listening.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.